Welcome to the QAV podcast, recorded Monday the 14th of September 2020. My name is Cameron Riley, episode 341 this is, season 3, episode 41. If you're brand new to the show, welcome. Uh, What we normally do on this show is my friend, Tony Kynaston, who's a very successful investor in Sydney. He's been been a professional investor for... 25 to 30 years uh, he's achieved very high returns over that time his average return over that period is something like well he used to say 19 and a half percent annualized over that period I think with the COVID crash he's now saying with the last year included at 17 and a half percent average annualized but it's still a really high number if you look at the returns that uh, most funds return they're well below that particularly over that period of time they might have a good year a good couple of years but over 5 10 20 years very few perform at that level what we normally do on this show is tony teaches me everything he knows about investing because i'm an idiot i know nothing about it and we normally answer questions from our subscribers who send them in over email or facebook each week but today we're doing something a little bit different a couple of days ago we had the opportunity to interview Kian Trin, who's the head of research at Lincoln Indicators, which is the company behind Stock Doctor. If you're not familiar with Stock Doctor, it's Tony's favorite tool for analyzing uh, the performance of companies and looking at the numbers behind their their, their revenue and their, their equity and their earnings and all of that kind of stuff. And we talk about it every week. We have done for the last 18 months. And we've been trying to get someone from Lincoln Indicators to come on and talk to us for the last 18 months. So we're very excited that Kian was able to take some time out of his day and come on and talk to us about uh, the, you know, the benefits of using Stock Doctor, the, the history of Lincoln Indicators and uh, how they came to develop Stock Doctor and their funds that they now run. And to top it off, the nice people at Lincoln have also come up with a deal for our subscribers. So if you go to qavpodcast.com.au slash stockdoctor, that will link you through to a special offer page on the Lincoln Indicators website where they have created a special deal for our subscribers where you can save hundreds of dollars a year on your Stock Doctor subscription. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au forward slash Stock Doctor. Um, okay, well, let's get into the chat with Kian Trin from Lincoln Indicators. Hello, sir. Hey, Cameron, how are you doing? Good, and that's Tony. Hi, Kian. Hi, Tony, how are you doing? Good, thank you. How's Melbourne lockdown going? Oh, we're, we're just waiting for them to open up at this stage, you know. Beautiful days outside, nice and sunny now that spring's come. Well, after a little bit of getting to know you chit-chat, we jumped straight into the deep end and I asked Kian, yeah, well, I guess the question that we, we wanted you to come on and talk about is why should people who are serious about investing uh, invest in a stock doctor subscription. How does it compete as a tool with all the other tools that are available out there in the market in terms of assessing the, the financial health of an organisation? Yeah, I think uh, first and foremost, Cam, it's our market-leading research. You know, our tried and tested quantitative methodology 
It's, it's an easy to understand nine golden rules framework for our members to have confidence and control in managing their portfolios. And it all starts with the financial health as the core of our stock selection process. So everything we recommend needs to be back tested. And this comes through in our star stock performance with our star growth stocks returning around 18.1% since 1995. And our borderline star growth stocks around 14% uh, since 2012. And also our star income stocks returning 14% per annum uh, since uh, inception in 2012. And it's our financial health model. It has a 96% success rate of avoiding corporate failures. So we are the only research house that has fully back-tested this model and it comes from our academic heritage. It's not easy because if you think about uh, company data, you need reliable um, uh, failed company data and we've identified past corporate failures before they've occurred. Uh, companies like, for instance, Dick Smith, uh, Virgin Australia just more recently, uh, Oriton, for instance, and also even OneTel. So we've identified numerous company failures. And it's this data source, you know, it's this integrity of the data from the financial statements that uh, also uh, distinguishes us from the rest because we've got a team of analysts who scrub the data before it comes in. So we do reasonableness checks. Now there's about 2000 companies um, and the data that comes through from the financial statements, from the balance sheets, cash flows needs to be checked. And so our analysts would do reasonableness checks on the bottom line before it comes through into our database. And our research is truly independent. We're not tied to any brokers. We don't mind if we need to remove a company from our universe, knowing that it's not going to affect our relationship at all. And also the fact that we provide support and education to our members. You can call in, ask our analysts about any stock we can guide you on our portfolio strategy, even if, say for instance, you are trend sensitive. Uh, and of course we have a world-class portfolio management tool. So you can produce reports, even for tax purposes. Um, we have filters and alerts, so you can identify hidden gems and stocks in specific industries. Uh, we've got a corporate calendar, advanced charting tool. Um, at the end of the day, this is all built into an easy to use platform, which guides you step-by-step through our nine golden rules framework so you can successfully invest uh, with confidence. Yeah, it's a damn good tool. I think that's that's probably one of the strengths for me is just being able to get access to that database of information, both the financials, the ability to filter and query, and, uh, but also things like the company announcements and just to look at those as well. Um, it's a yeah, really, really strong tool and it, and it works easily. easily. It's, it's quite quick. Um, and it's, it's up to date with the latest figures quickly as well, which is good. And the other thing is also, I love the, just the, you know, on the platform, you can see the trend in the profit figures. You can see the mm -hmm. trend in dividends. You can see the trend in cash flows over time. Yeah, so very important. Understand that because a lot of the time when you just look at things at, at, uh, on an absolute basis without comparing it to, to previous years, you don't mm -hmm. fully understand the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. With investing, you really need to understand that big picture. Mm. No, I agree. And I think also, too, it's worthwhile highlighting uh, for people that Stock Doctor over the years has really created an army of individual investors, private individuals who invest. And uh, I don't know how many subscribers you had, but whenever I've turned up to, I mean, I went along to some early meetings when there must have been 20 people there. But, um, you know, now you turn up and it's a full ballroom. It's probably a couple of thousand people in each state turning up for the user group meeting. So uh, 
there's a lot of people out there, I think, who I stock doctor a, a lot. And, um, and I think that's important because one of the things that I bang on about is that people should be taking control of their own financial futures and not paying some of sometimes the exorbitant fees that uh, brokers or, or managers or intermediaries, financial planners or whoever charge people for sometimes sub substandard service. So yeah, the ability to have a tool to let you do it yourself is very, very important. I've been using Stock Doctor now for 20 odd years and I've been really happy with it. And uh, it's a fantastic tool and I, I thoroughly recommend it. It's, uh, it's great to have all the corporate information at your fingertips and to be able to slice and dice it. And then, then, then to get the, the benefits of your financial health scoring and recommendations on Star Stock, et cetera. So thank you very much. It's helped me a lot. No, thanks, Tony. I mean, I think more important now when, when COVID's hit, when the economic, when the economy's fallen and all these cash flows have dried up, I think um, it really stands out there. Um, it helps. But of course, you know, I think we're in a situation where government's providing a lot of stimulus, helping prop up these companies. What, what they call uh, zombie companies, you know, where they're surviving mainly on government support. And if this government support dries up and if their cash flows don't start to pick up, um, there'll be a, a large risk. And I think that risk will come in next year. Um, maybe, you need a new, maybe you need a new financial health category, Z companies, zombie <laughs> companies, like dead men walking companies. <laughs> you, could, you could perhaps give us a bit of background on your own career and how you got involved with the Lincoln people. Yeah, no, thanks, Tony. Uh, my background, um, I, I came out of uni in around 2001, uh, Melbourne University, but um, I studied actuarial science back then. Um, so I landed a job at the, this company called Towers Perrin and, and I was modelling for superannuation funds. After about a couple of years into it, I moved on to the investment consulting side of their business. You know, I was uh, helping them manage uh, huge amounts of money for institutional investors. Um, so um, I, I moved out of asset consulting right, and, and jumped straight into uh, broking. And, and, and from then I, I joined the research division at um, Tolhurst Knoll. But what I learned there, uh, I started building up quantitative models. I started testing theories around valuations and target prices. Because in the broking world, it was very cutthroat. Uh, because if you think about broking and, and the analysts that work there, there's a lot of uh, conflicted uh, interests within those kind of companies, right? There's a lot of vested mm. interest. For, for example, analysts are paid, you know, to beef up stocks um, because the broker has an IPO, you know, has some connection with the company or they need to maintain that relationship with companies. So being from a quant quantitative background, Tony, you can take a more independent approach when you're looking at these things and you can understand, okay, what the analysts are actually doing, how they're coming with these target prices or valuations. And then you can critique that. You can really critique that. So I spent years, you know, trying to look at their models, building up quantitative models, valuation models, building up factor-driven models, just to try to understand what works and what doesn't. I think in 2017, Lincoln asked me whether I would wanted to come and help manage their research side. At Lincoln, the philosophies were around quant, quant metrics, you know, objectiveness, um, and, um, and here I am today. Well, can you give us a, a bit of a potted history of Lincoln? I, I know uh, a little bit about it in terms of 
Dr. Nerdlink in doing his PhD on, on risk analysis and what sort of factors would, uh, would uh, lead to a company becoming bankrupt. Uh, but how was that sort of spun off into the kind of quant models that uh, Stock Doctor uses today? Dr. Merv, he wasn't just an academic, he was quite an Olympian, Olympian as well. He sat down, I think he, he had an engineering friend and he, he sat down with an engineering friend and he, he didn't understand why, you know, engineers could uh, run a formula to calculate the, the, the risk that a, a bridge would collapse, but how come no one really mm. looked at uh, companies that way, you know? How can I find a financial indicator that... Um, could measure the risk of corporate collapse, I think. And, and that was really interesting because that set the scene for him to write this PhD thesis. And, and you know, when he, he he competed in 1956 to 1960 Olympics, I, I guess it actually worked in his favour because he had that brand. You know, he had this, this right. great brand. And, then, and so when he uh, wrote this PhD thesis in 1982, and it was called uh, the empirical study into the use usefulness of accounting ratios to describe levels of insolvency risk. I think, um, you know, he, it was a way of trying to, okay, how do I, how do I really um, make this work? You know, back then, I guess um, it was a time when um, it, th there was a lot of issues around credit risk. You know, a lot of companies were. Were, were falsifying their statements. A lot of companies were, were causing, uh, there was a lot of debt and nobody really understood it, right? And so um, he, then after that, I think um, um, what happened was then, you know, he left the university and then he started to establish his own consultancy business. And it was then that uh, Dr. Lincoln and also his son, Tim Lincoln, identified an opportunity to scale the business. Right, and share, share the, his theory. So it started off in 1992. I think they, they developed uh, Risk Manager. That was what the company was called, uh, the platform was called. And it was really about providing commercial credit risk mm. assessment to, to, to companies, especially the banks who were mm. lending to companies. They wanted to understand the, the credit risk. Okay, um, it was quite an interesting time because back then, you know, many stockbrokers and investment advisors, they were continually exposing their clients to unnecessary uh, risk, you know, with these poor recommendations. And it still happens today, but it, it, it happened quite a lot back then because there was a lack of transparency. You know, it's, the reporting standards weren't as, as, as high as they were today. Mm -hmm. um, and so over time, they moved from that credit risk platform. Tim realised that, okay, how about we, we, we help investors, mum and dad investors, not just these, these corporates. We wanted to help mum and invest, dad investors uh, identify investments on the stock market. So that, that started to move into um, what we call, what we understand the stock doctor today, you know, and that was launched in about 1996. But um, even with the credit risk model, risk manager, you understand because it's a credit risk model, it's not, uh, it needed some other factors that can drive returns. You know, what, what do we mean by factors? It's what the drivers of risk and return are within the portfolio. So, for instance, you, you might be looking at value, growth, size, momentum, uh, volatility. Uh, debt is another factor, for instance. Uh, and you might even use technical factors like volume, um, moving averages, Bollinger Bands. So, so there's so many different factors. So what, we, what they were trying to do was trying to identify a process that was objective and scalable. As you understand, with quantitative investing, there's a lot of limitations to it. 
you can have so many different biases. And one of the biggest biases when you're testing this data and theories is the bias of survivorship. And especially when, when you're dealing with financial health, right? Mm. Um, but over time, I think, you know, financial health is there as a risk mitigator for mm -hmm. our portfolios. And then once you overlay that with, with um, these uh, factors, it provides a very strong SOC selection framework for our investors. And it's easier to understand as well. Of course, it depends on your investment objective, with whether your growth or income or not. In the early days of, uh, of Stock Doctor, there was, and I, I've been around for a long time, so I used to get a couple of uh, floppy disks sent to me in the mail uh, every half to update the uh, Stock Doctor software and data with, uh, yeah. in the old dial-up days. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think one of the things that first struck me about Stock Doctor was if you look at the market, there's a very, very, very small percentage of companies which you would say were financially strong. And I found that quite surprising. You might be able to rattle off the numbers, but it's, you know, out of the two and a half thousand stocks on the share market, something like 50 or 60, you, you probably qualify as having strong financial health. Something like that, I think, anyway. I think it's around about... Um around currently around 72 percent are rated as unhealthy tony mm. certainly helps you sleep at night investing in strong financially healthy companies so so in the history of stock doctor you've got your financial health ratings but you went an extra step as you say to try and work out uh, how to predict outperformance and maybe take, just take us through that so you've got your other elements that are used to get to a list of what you call star stocks so how did those elements come about if you think about the market, there's around 2,000 companies and um, we run a filter on those 2,000 companies for healthy, financially healthy companies, which, which leaves you with roughly around 450 companies, right, Tony? And then the, the next thing we do is then we try to identify, okay, out of those 450 companies, what factors do these companies have that can help uh, drive out performance over the long term? Okay, so we had to go back and do a lot of testing, the quant testing on these, these stock-specific factors. We tested value also over, I believe, around 15 to 20 years. We understood that value didn't really work that well, not, not specifically in the Australian market. It didn't work well at all. Um, and it was quite interesting for us because, you know, from a value perspective, you think, oh, you know, people want to buy cheap if you can buy cheap. You know, your returns can, you can maximise your returns, but um, they actually worked against what philosophies um, kind of taught us in, in, in the investment world because when you're trying to select stocks on value, I think there is that risk of selecting a value trap mm -hmm. or stocks where earnings could continue to fall. And then so you're misled into that value perception. But so, so we wanted to concentrate on, metrics that we, we understood and we, we had uh, more confidence in, in the numbers. And that's where, you know, where we wanted to focus more on the numbers, the quants, you know. But then from a growth perspective, what are you trying to look for? You're trying to look for companies that can grow sustainably over time, you know, despite um, the market cycles, right? So, uh, yeah, that's why we predominantly invest in industrials because resources are quite cyclical. Financials are quite cyclical as well. Uh, and most of the ones that are true growth stories lie in that space. Um, for income, 
back to, to our point, you know, we're trying to look for factors that can help us identify sustainable dividend yields. We're not selecting stocks just for yield at all costs. And to do that, we were trying to look for certain factors that help understand whether that dividend was going to be sustainable. And these factors might be, for instance, free cash flow. Um, it might also be the trend in the payout ratio over time. It's not the absolute, but the trend, because trends will tell you more. If they've got forecasts, what the forecasts are doing as well. So, and then do they have a track record of dividend payments, even during bad times and good times? So just the, these kind of things, and then we'll bring it all together. Um, but it's not as easy as it sounds because different, different industries require different factors, Tony. You know what I mean? For instance, um, you've got, we, we've got four different models. We've got industrials, we've got financials, we've got resources, we've also got recent infrastructure. And they have different factors because they have their own characteristics. Um, for instance, if we're looking at infrastructure stocks, they are capital intensive businesses. Mm -hmm. So you can't really use, let's say, earnings per share or, you know, their bottom line profits for them, right? Um, and another, you know, back to what we touched on before with financials, you can't, where debt and cash flow ratios cannot be applied because of interest costs and also borrowing costs are part of their core operations, right? So we just got to separate them out into different factors. But in the end, you know, we shortlist companies based on their financial health, their quality growth or their sustainable yield. And then we've got a team of analysts, right? And and it's it's quite a small team. Why? Because most of most of our quant process does the heavy lifting. It does all all the analysis there. And then when we're left with around a hundred companies at the end. Mm -hmm. And so when when you've got five five people in our investment team looking at a hundred companies, it's not too too bad. And then they can uh, they look into it. They 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 try to understand a bit more where. Quant analysis on its own, it has limitations because it's backward looking. So they try to look forward. They try to understand the active risks of the business. Has the share price accounted for those risks? Uh, for instance, um, has the company done acquisitions or capital raisings that can lead to dilution in returns? You know, these kind of things. Um, um, is, has management been selling down shares or, or is short interest on the stock rising? So all these different things they, they assess and then they, they talk to the manager management of the company just to provide that additional what we call qualitative overlay to, to lead us to our star growth, uh, borderline star growth and star income stocks. One of the things that I know that Stock Doctor does for those star stocks is to is to calculate an IV, an intrinsic value for the shares. But you haven't you said before the past analysis didn't show that value uh, was a good investment. Do you hmm. do you use your intrinsic value per share for the stocks that you're investing in to decide whether or not to, to buy some of those. If you had two star stocks or two, what do you call them, the dividend paying stocks you were thinking about investing in, and one was trading at a price above its star stock internal IV uh, and the other one wasn't, would you favour one over the other? when you came to buy? If they're exactly the two same stocks, Tony? Yeah, yeah if they're both star stocks, they're both, you're both considering oh. putting them into your portfolio. Do you dif differentiate between the one that's uh, above its IV to the one that's below its IV? We don't differentiate in a way that we, we would recommend one over the other, Tony. Okay. But what we, we do is we, we use valuation as a means of trying to understand why that stock is cheaper than the other one. Right? It's just a way to, to, to help us understand. So why is this stock trading at a premium to valuation versus the other one? 
has a historically traded at a premium? Is there this large discount? And, and, and is that discount highlighting a riskness, risk to the business that I'm not aware of? Okay, so if, if a stock was trading, uh, say, a 10% discount to valuation, the other one was 10% above, I'd look at the 10% discount and I'd go, I need to conduct further due diligence on that stock just to make sure why it's trading that low and has it traded that low, has it historically traded that low before, mm -hmm. right? And I need to fully understand the risks around that. So back to that question, would I favour that cheap one over the other one? Uh, pro probably not, mainly because the market's already factored in uh, some of those risks. It's probably have, has a higher risk than the one that's trading at a premium. Mm, interesting. Okay. Um, let me move on from IV. One of the changes that happened in Stock Doctor a few years ago was to introduce uh, SD Max and some of the uh, graphing tools that you that you have now. How did that come about and, and why did you decide to do that and has it improved the star stock performance? Stock Doctor historically, uh, Lincoln hasn't been very strong advocates of technical analysis. Um, what we do is we try to do everything from a quant perspective. You know, we try to back test everything. And, and we understand that with, with um, technical analysis, there's a lot of visual interpretation to it, you know, especially with charting and all those kind of things. Um, and unless you, you, you actually back test it, you know, you run these indicators and you go, let's see if RSA, RSI works. If you buy when it goes below 30, and sell when it goes above 30, for instance, as a just a very simple testing kind of theory. Does that work? You know, you've got to test these things. And we don't see it much, you know, uh, research that's done on this. We see a lot of talk mm -hmm. and a lot of charting, but we don't see much. much talk. And I'll give you an example. Take, for instance, uh, even things like Elliott Wave Theory or DeMarc Indicators. If you think about it, it it sounds like a, you know, a numbering system, it's quant driven, it looks like it, but really it requires a lot of visual interpretation because you know, different prices move in ways and counts tend to be revised as time moves forward. You, know, you follow it and then you realize, oh geez, yeah, these counts have been revised because it's subject to interpretation. Then it, it's, and it can be broken down into even smaller time frequencies as well. And that is also subject to interpretation. So there's a lot of subjectiveness in this kind of analysis. But the thing is, what we wanted to do was, we wanted to also help our members, you know? Um, and our members were quite keen on the technical indicators uh, strategy. So we went and we, we ended up back testing a number of strategies, you know? But um, what we wanted to do was test for a few things. We, we wanted at least, to maintain three uh, objectives. The first was um, it needed to assist um, investors, right, with exit and re-entry signals. So it needs to be clear, okay? And it can't negatively impact our existing long-term star stock performance. Mm -hmm. It can't do that. And thirdly, it needed to be replicable and it needed to be programmable within the stock doctor platform. Okay, so it needs to be there. Mm -hmm. So that was that was the project. That was the objectives of the project. But um, so we wanted an indicator that was easy to apply for our members. Um, so we back tested a range of indicators from stop losses, moving averages, RSIs, all that kind of things. But what we found was the success rate for a lot of these was around fifty percent. Mm. 
but oh, you know the best was not much more. But then in the end, we we had to settle too, and we we rolled out you know back to your point, Tony. You know the SD Max, okay, which stands for the Stop Doctor Moving Average Crossover, okay, and also we 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 came out with the uh, SD30 TSR, which is the Stop Doctor Trailing Stop Loss. Okay, which is really a simple 30% stop loss. Right. Okay, on the highs yeah. and lows. We needed our members to understand the limitations. What, what we found was over the long term, so over 10 years, we're talking about 10 years, both those technical indicators, if you overlay that with our star stock portfolios, it, it actually helped performance. Mm -hmm. uh, it helped, um, especially the SD30 TSR, the stop loss strategy, it added about 1% per annum to the performance over five years, three years, uh, 10 years. The SD Max prior to COVID-19 also um, did quite well. Because of the nature of the SD Max, if you think about it, it's a moving average indicator, right? So uh, with moving averages, it tends to lag, right? The moving average was a 14 to 13 week uh, moving average. So what happens was it doesn't work really well for fast moving markets. And we've seen with COVID-19, with the kind of V-shaped recovery we've seen, it didn't really work well because it got you out the bottom <laughs> and then you had to buy back in near the top. You know, so, and because of what happened over the last couple of months, um, the short-term performance of the SD Max up to the last five years hasn't been that strong. But um, if you average that out over 10 years, I think it, it starts to recover again. So it worked quite well during GFC, mm -hmm. but it didn't work well during COVID. And so people need to understand the limitations of these technical indicators. Mm -hmm. One question I want to raise with you, Tony, is, you know, what your view on, on value investing is. I, I think, you know, I think that's one of the fundamental principles that you, you guys follow. And after you've heard me talk, I guess, mm. what is your view? Just trying to understand. Well, I think I think value investing means different things to different people. You know, there's a there's an index for value stocks, and if we look at that index, it it bears no relationship to what I would call value companies. So, okay. um, personally, I I try and marry quality and value, which is what we call our podcast quality at value. So definitely, okay. it's important to have the financial health indicators there, and and other quality metrics that we use. We use a checklist to look at balance sheets, um, rising equity, and uh, those a whole range of things like that, which 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 are also there. And then we just try and, and buy buy those those quality stocks at at a reasonable price. Um, so I understand your point about about the falling knives and not trying to catch them, or the, the companies which are on the way out and, and they look cheap. Um, but they're going to get cheaper, as you said, going forward. So we do use an element of sentiment, which is why I asked about SD Max, because um, okay. you know if the, if, this, if the share sentiment isn't there, it doesn't matter how cheap it is. If people are selling, there's no point in buying, right? Because you got, eventually you've got to try and sell it to someone else. So um, we use sentiment a lot. We do our own um, trending analysis to, to help us with that. Um, but, but one of the things, which the reason for my question was one of the things that kind of started me off on the path of looking at that was, a long, long time ago, I, I I started to do some deeper dives into the star stock universe to see if there was a way of of slicing and dicing that group of stocks to find out whether you know whether some would perform better. Because in any group of anything, any sample of any particular thing, whether it's stocks or or you know um, 
uh, incomes in the in the wider population, there's going to be a bell curve, and there's going to be some some stocks in that stock star stock universe which do the heavy lifting. And one of the things that that I came up with when I looked at that analysis was that the ones that were below the, the stock doctor IV calculation did tend to outperform because they passed the quality metrics tests. So, you know, chances are they weren't going to go, um, they weren't on the way out, um, but, but they were also passing a measure of value testing as well. And, I, and that to me was a, um, a sensible and, and better way of, of investing. And I took it a bit further and, and took it outside the stock doctor universe as well. Um, and, and it's trying to trying to get that sort of sleep at night quality analysis and then trying to buy of those stocks trying to buy the ones which are um, which are uh, cheaper on the on the valuation scale because as you said there are lots of stocks out there that are highly highly priced and you, know, you can think about the internet stocks and the, the fangs and all those kinds of people uh, and I think they'll have their day in the sun but valuation always comes home to roost at some stage may not be one year, two year, five years, but um, you know, if you if you pay a lot of money for something, at least in the stock market, uh, then you know, at some stage, that will probably be eroded either by competition, by poor management, or by industry changes over time, and uh, and you you've got you know less less um, less pillow, less cushion to to in the valuation to to fall back on when things get tough. Mm. The, the only um, issue I have with that, Tony, is this issue about how, how do you put an actual valuation on a stock to understand whether it's cheap or not? You yeah, know? good good question. We, we don't use any one particular method. We use about four or five, and we just try and create a heat map for valuation. Um, mm. So we use the stock doctor one. We use the consensus forecast. We do a couple of our own calculations based on forward EPSs and, and current EPSs, uh, and, and we just score them it's directional. So if something scores well, it generally means that it's, uh, it's cheap on all of those different metrics. And if it scores poorly, it's, it's overvalued on all those different metrics. But, but I agree with you. It's valuation is a very subjective thing. Yeah. Cause we did some um, testing on, on um, just analyst target prices, Tony, um, quite interesting where we looked at the relationship between analyst target prices and the returns achieved over one year, you know, and we did this across numerous years going back, and we found that there was uh, very little relationship between the two. Um, in fact, if you did the reverse, you would have done better. <laughs> um, so it, it was just something that was yeah. quite interesting. But um, it was, and, and it, it and it led us to understand a lot with these, you know, research reports as well that. Um, you know, just don't take you know target prices with a grain of salt, mm. uh, or, or valuations for that matter, because you need to really look at the underlying business. For us, I think because we invest in a large of a large proportion of what we invest in are, are um, you know true growth stories that are still growing quite strongly. It's very hard to put that valuation because when you've got strong growth, strong cash flows coming into the future, it's very hard to to say okay that's that's a value today based on those earnings today. Uh, it's very difficult. So we, we tend to not put too much weight on that. We focus on, on other things where, you know, how, how large can they grow? What's their marketplace like? Um, how likely are they going to maintain and grow market share, for instance? 
Yeah, I guess I'm. I guess I'm a little bit, a uh, little bit different to that because mm. I find that I don't try and forecast, but I find that earnings per share forecasts one year out aren't too bad. You're right. I agree with you about being sceptical on stockbroker valuations going forward, but oftentimes the earnings per share forecast is really management guidance, and and so you know they they often do have. Um, the, well, they have access to the most information. So management should be the best at forecasting um, earnings per share. Anything more than sort of one year out is a bit of a wet finger test, I think, where just you're sort of licking the, your finger and sticking it up in the air and trying to, trying to guess which way the wind blows. And that's why I have difficulty with, with companies that have a lot of blue sky in them because I, I, I just can't in any shape or form forecast what 10 years out might look like. Um, you know, for a, for a growth company. Yes, it's growing and yes, it's a good product and yes, it's being used. But, you know, as we saw last week with, um, with Afterpay, there's always, there always could be someone like um, PayPal coming along to, to get into the marketplace because the margins are so good. So, you know, it's, it, they're very hard to forecast those things, even though they could have, you know, um, the ability to grow worldwide and the ability to, to um, bring in more customers. You know, it's a basic tenet of business that margins get traded away. And, and so if I was going to look at a valuation model for an afterpay, just to pick one, but any, any sort of growth stock, I'd be wanting to see what the analyst was thinking about in terms of margin erosion due to competition, what government regulations sort of assumptions they were putting into it, um, competitive assumptions, all those kinds of things I think are, um, are so important to those valuations, but so hard to predict. That it makes it very hard to say whether you, you know, what the valuation should be for that company, and then whether you're overpaying for it. So, it's 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 a it's a tough thing to do. Yeah, definitely, and and I agree with you. And that's why, you know, when we when I came on board, I told the guys, the team, you know, don't focus too much on on trying to forecast because how much more do we know than what management has guided, or how yes. much the, the brokers are doing? Yeah. Rather, focus your time on understanding the risks to the business yeah. and whether those forecasts are likely to be optimistic or not. And of course I was you know, investing through the, through the dot-com wreck when all of the, you know, the, the best valuations were just laid, laid waste by, you know, a NASDAQ that went down 80%. So, you know, those valuations and forecasts weren't, <laughs> weren't that good. Um, and, and, and to be honest, this sort of market feels a bit like 98, 99 again to me. That where a lot of people are buying, I'm not, I'm not saying you guys are, but a lot of people are buying growth at any price, and uh, I don't mind buying growth. I don't mind buying on price, but growth at any price, I think, gets into that quadrant of high risk for me. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And you know, when you sort of dabble into that space, just I find myself waking up early in the morning to see what the U.S. stocks done and where the Nasdaq is, and and you know, reading the paper from cover to cover to see if the company's mentioned and all that, and that's that's not how I want to invest. I want to be able to get a solid company, even if it only makes 20 percent a year. I'm really happy with that, and I can just uh, you know um, go about my life and 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 spend a bit of time on the stock market, but not ninety percent of my time on the stock market. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's that's what we're here for with Stock Doctor, I guess, <laughs> yeah. to help to help on that front. But no, thanks, thanks um, for the chat, Tony and, and Ken. Well, thank you. Thank you, Thanks Ken. very much. Enjoy the rest of your night. Um, All right, stay safe. 
Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed that. Don't forget to take up that uh, special offer that the Lincoln Indicator people have kindly created for us. Go to qavpodcast.com.au slash stockdoctor. And uh, for the new listeners in particular, please be aware that Tony and I aren't financial advisors, so don't take anything you hear on this podcast as financial advice that's right for you. Don't buy or sell any stocks based on what we say on this podcast for a variety of reasons. You know, uh, what's a good idea today may not be a good idea tomorrow. What's a good idea for Tony may not be a good idea for you, etc., etc. If you need financial advice, go see a financial advisor. With that, stay safe. Good luck with your investing. We'll be back next week. Take care.